welcome to the Natural Selection, where this week's theme is eggs. Hello listeners and welcome to the Natural Selection. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Naomi. Hello. We have Nick. Hello. And I am also Nick. Hello. So yeah, we're the Natural Selection. In the first section, we're going to talk about nature news and stuff we found out from the past week. And in the second section, we're going to talk about different theme and how that relates to all the wildlife you can find on this planet. So this week's theme is eggs. Uh, have you guys had a nice week? Yeah. All right. Yeah, not bad. I know, I know we're all in lockdown. A strange time to be sort of interacting with nature. Um, I had minimal nature interactions this week. The only thing that happened, again, more dogs in the park, was that um, we nearly got run over by a, a pack of very excited dogs. Fun. Yeah, and then some squirrels. They are very brave in the park that I walk around and they will come right up to you and ask if you have, well, you know, like, um, wonder if you've got any food. Money, money. Yeah. <laughs> I said ask, but obviously they don't ask anything. They're squirrels. I went out the other night to look for foxes in the park and uh, didn't find any. And then on my way back, I heard something in the, in the bushes and like stopped and looked and there was a fox. And it was like sniffing around and like doing little pounces in the, the bushes. And then it came up a minute later with a little mouse hanging out of its mouth, some hunting wildlife. I will say that maybe I said this before, but the last time I saw a fox in, in the wild, the, the city, uh, I did say, look, there's a fox to some German guy walking past. And without even breaking stride, without a pause, he was like, on so, like, <laughs> so what? <laughs> Uh, which is classic Berlin. So, um. Well, I suppose one benefit of being locked in is that we've all had plenty of time to look up some amazing news from around the world. So we're back in a moment to talk about that. Naomi, I've heard accusations that the research you found was just a load of old bull. Yes, so uh, the research I found was published in Genome Research, and the work was carried out by researchers from the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research. And what they were looking at was the bull Y chromosome. So a little bit of background of this research. So they found in mice, when they looked at the Y chromosome, that there was a lot of repeats. So about 98% of the chromosome was made up of genetic repeats. And they found that they were testy-specific genetic repeats. They also looked at the human Y chromosome. There's less repetition in this, there's maybe only about 45%. So they wanted to look and see if this high amount of repetition was just because of rodents or if it was in other animals. So they decided to look at the bull Y chromosome. So they looked at Hereford bulls and it took them quite a long time, about a decade, because it's actually a very gene dense chromosome. So it's actually the most dense one that they looked at. And it's made of about 96% of genetic repeats. And this sort of puzzled them a little bit until they looked at the X chromosome. And so in the X chromosome, they found that there's also a number of testy specific genetic repeats, less than in the Y, but there's a few of them. So they 
theorized that this is because in the Y chromosome, the repeats help them get into the gamete, and in the X chromosome, they'll help them get in. So they're kind of competing against each other. It's sort of an arms race, which is, is really interesting because it sounds sort of counterintuitive because you wouldn't want like a sex skewed relationship, but this does seem to be occurring. So they actually found this in mice. So when they knocked out some of the repeats in the Y chromosome in mice, that it actually became skewed towards females so that more females were produced. So yeah, this is interesting. So the Y chromosome in the bull is able to try and bully its way into these gametes. <laughs> that was, uh, that's really cool. As I understand it, is that those repeats in the Y chromosome actually affect how often the Y chromosome is actually inherited? This seems to be the case. So they're not really sure how this is happening. So it's hard to say for sure, but basically it seems to improve its chances of getting into the gamete. Yeah, I think they need to kind of figure out the mechanism and stuff, but that seems to be what they've worked out from the kind of experiments that they've done in other species. Oh, super cool. I found some news to do with sandwiches. Do you want to hear? I'm already hungry. So yeah, please. Yeah. So this is to do with South Georgia and the Sandwich Isles. Oh. So South Georgia is a really confusingly named place because there already exists a Georgia and a Georgia, but this is South Georgia, which is south of Georgia and Georgia. But they discovered something really cool down there. So they've been doing 20 years of whale surveys between South Georgia and the Antarctic. Because, yeah, the next bit of land to it is off the coast of South America, but the next bit of land is pretty much Antarctica. From 1998 to 2018, in that region when they were looking, they found a single blue whale. But an expedition this year has resulted in 58 blue whale sightings and numerous acoustic detections. So they're down there and they're just yelling. Yes, really loudly as well. I think they uh, yell at, I think it's around 180 decibels. I read it and it was one of those, I was like, that's too loud. But there might be a reason why they've been avoiding the area. So South Georgia was uninhabited uh, when it was discovered, I think in the 1700s. But in 1904, it was established as an industrial whaling site. They think that they killed over 42,000 blue whales just in that area. So there's two theories. Is why Because most of this hunting took place in the 1930s. Uh, there was legal protection installed in the 1960s, but illegal hunting continued there until the 1970s. So there's a few theories on why it took so long for the blue whales to return to this area. One is that it could just be that they remember that it's not a good place to go because the 1970s is not that long ago for a whale. Some of them live uh, nearly 100 years. So they might be saying, don't go there. That's where they kill us. But equally, even more depressing is that they could have killed every whale with a cultural memory of the place. So there were no elderly whales to say you can come and eat here. But it appears that the blue whales have rediscovered the area which could be really exciting in the future because if they realize it's a safe place to go and feed, they have extra food and would help their populations recover. For animals we understand so little about, that could be really, really important. That's amazing. That's great news. Yeah. Other research has shown that humpback whales are also returning to the region. This is great news. This is an unusual great news from our podcast today, Nick. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, I like a bit of good news. But I'm not the only one with good news, am I, Nick? Yeah. You guys hear about the new monkey? <laughs> Best sentence ever. No, go on. There's a new monkey out. This one actually hit the <laughs> mainstream news because it's so exciting. So maybe some of our listeners who don't regularly scour the net for new science research have heard of this one. 
but there's a new type of monkey. Some researchers based all around the world, but uh, headed by a team in Myanmar, have described a new species of langur, which is a type of monkey with tail. Uh, I'm not a primatologist, but they live in Myanmar. The species name is Trachypithecus popa, and it lives on Mount Popa on the side of the mountain. And it's the only place in the world where this species of monkey lives. And you may be wondering, how did we find a new species of monkey after all this time? And of course, the answer lies not in finding new monkeys, but in calling a monkey that we know already a new monkey, which seems a bit of a cop-out, but for a taxonomist, that's the work that you do. So they basically have looked at this, this Langer species complex and said, oh, this group here is genetically and morphologically distinct enough from all the other ones to constitute a new species. And now, of course, uh, now that it's been described, it's already endangered because it only lives in this one place and there are only a couple of dozen individuals. So we've got ourselves a new endangered species of monkey. So um, great news for two of us. Neutral news about bulls from the third, but I won't say who. I suppose it's good news for bulls in a way. Wouldn't you want someone to go on a podcast and tell everyone that you had really potent testicles, Nick? <laughs> That's actually my greatest dream. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's good news all around. Which does mean it's time for our theme. You guys ready? Oh, yeah. Have you got some excellent yes. facts? I'm excited. I'm cracking up with anticipation. Oh, we are the best. <laughs> but for now, we really do have to start with our theme. So we'll be back in a moment to talk about eggs. So listeners, I'm sure you're familiar with eggs. I did look up in the UK, we eat about 2.5 billion eggs every year. But that's not the only way that things get born, isn't it? Oh, no, it's not. I'm glad you asked, Nick, because I'm sure you didn't know this, but I have a bunch of things to talk about today to get us started <laughs> on our egg conversation. And only a few of them have to do with eggs, so bear with me. We're going to talk about modes of reproduction, the relationship, if you will, between the parent and the zygote, an often overlooked aspect of life on Earth. But uh, most animals reproduce via some sort of egg, but we'll be mostly focusing on the vertebrates. So I want to start with maybe the thing that the one the type that we're most familiar with. You'll all recognize this term right away: hematrophic viviparity. So in hematrophic viviparity, that's where okay, so I know it's a it's a long term, but really it's basically what we do. So in placental mammals and one species of lizard, nutrients are provided by the mother through some sort of tissue exchange, in our case, the placenta. And this allows the young to be gestated inside the, a womb and then birth live. Can I ask, which species? Yeah. Of lizard? Yeah. Yeah, Nick, the lizard species is Pseudomoya pagansteckeri. Oh, that one. Okay. Yeah. You know it? No. <laughs> anyway, that lizard also has evolved a form of hemotrophic viviparity, but... There's also the equally commonly known histotrophic viviparity. Histotrophic viviparity is commonly found in marsupials, sharks, and a few types of salamanders. It's where the zygote develops within the mother's oviducts, but doesn't get the nutrients from a placenta or womb. It receives the nutrients from other tissues. So think about a joey kangaroo in the pouch. It's usually like a tiny little, looks like a little fetus, but it's not in an egg sac or uh, a placenta, it's attached to a mammary gland. 
And as it gets older, it can move around the pouch freely, but it has somewhere that it can feed, even at that early stage of development. This is also true for some sharks and some salamanders. An interesting form of, of living, but doesn't involve eggs yet. So we're going to get there. The next one that I want to talk about is ovoviviparity. And you might be thinking, wait, viviparity, that means, okay, live birth. But ovo means egg. So you have egg live birth. Yes, it's a, it's a sort of combination between the two. And this is something that you find in some frogs and some lizards, particularly the slow worm, which those of you from England might recognize as an American, I had to look up what that was, but it's a lizard with no limbs. I think it's related to the skink. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't have any ex- uh, external limbs, but it still has a shoulder girdle. So you can see that it, it still has the lizard shape to it inside. It's not like a snake where they, just the whole body is backbone. But the most common ovoviviparous animal are the seahorses. So what defines ovoviviparity? The ovoviviparity, it's where the zygote is retained in either the female or male's body, but there's no feeding interaction between the parent and the zygote. So after the eggs are fertilized in the seahorses, they're transferred into the male's stomach, where he holds them in a sort of internal sac as they gestate, but he doesn't feed them. They have eggs and they feed from the yolk and the egg. I think that's a really interesting way of being raised. And some of these other examples, for example, the frog, they don't take it into the stomach, but they live inside of the vocal sacs of the frog. So the eggs are transferred from the female's oviduct and then come to term within the vocal sacs of these frogs and then are born from the mouth. Crazy. Then we get to- From the mouth. From the mouth. I don't like it. (laughs) So like vomit babies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That. Mm -hmm. So we have two more. Uh, These are a bit more familiar to us. We have oviparity, which is familiar from birds and monotremes. And it's where the fertilization happens internally, but the female lays the zygote as an egg with yolk inside to feed the embryo as it remains in the egg. So usually the egg is not retained in the body or is only retained for a limited amount of time. In the chicken, it's retained for 24 to 36 hours, during which time, interestingly, the patterning on the outside of the egg develops. So all chicken eggs start out white, and as they move through the oviduct, they gain their patterning. Finally, we have ovuliparity, which is where the eggs are laid externally and fertilization is external. So you see this in fishes, mollusks, and arthropods, and in many frogs, which is where you get these clumps of tadpoles. So the female lays the tadpoles, and then the male fertilizes them outside of the body. I think we talked once about a species of fish that lived in Berlin, where they have a sort of mutualistic relationship with a type of clam, where they lay the egg near the clam and then fertilize by the clam's air duct, or not air duct, but water vent. And it takes in the sperm and fertilizes the eggs by dispersing the water over them. This is not in the order of development in evolutionary timescale. I wanted to list these in terms of what we're sort of most familiar with and then go increasingly far from that as we went along. So we start with the the zygote that's fertilized and developed within the body to eventually having a zygote that's fertilized outside and developed outside the body. Okay. I suppose to me, the most uh, recognizable egg is amniotic ones because that's the ones that birds lay. Is that right? 
Yes, so that that is correct. So I, yeah, I wanted to talk about amniotic eggs and how this evolutionary step came about. So I'll explain first when they sort of evolved and what was happened before that. And then I'll maybe discuss what defines an amniotic egg and what that means and what kind of animals have them. So, so these eggs evolved sometime maybe around 340, 318 million years ago. Before this, there was amphibians and amphibians laid eggs, but they laid them near water um, or kind of in wet environments. So the eggs had a yolk sac and that was pretty much it. So that was, and then the outside needed to be near water so that it wouldn't dry out. And then after this, the next step that kind of happened in this sort of egg development as we think about it, are these amniotic eggs. And so these were really important for moving on to dry land. So these kind of early reptiliomorphs that laid these eggs, and what they are is basically they're, we would think about say like a chicken egg or a bird egg. And they also have several different membranes and layers inside. And these allow exchange with the environment and also nutrients with the embryo. I'll just go through some of the layers that they have. So this, yeah, this would have um, appeared in the Carboniferous period and these eggs could survive out of water. So it really opened up whole new environments where these animals could kind of branch out into. So these sort of early, early tetrapods could kind of roam much further from water than the earlier amphibians could have. These have four different sacs or membranes. The first sac, which is the crion, which allows oxygen to go from the shell to the embryo and also gets rid of carbon dioxide. There's the allantois, which stores waste from the embryo. And there's the amnion. I feel like that part in a movie where they say the name of the movie, because that's where amniotic eggs get their name from. And the amnion keeps the embryo from drying out. So it's really critical for living on land. And then the other membrane is the yolk sac. Um, and that's, that holds the, the yolk which are basically the nutrients that help the embryo development. And then outside of this, there's a hard shell. It's permeable, so it allows oxygen and carbon dioxide to diffuse in and out, but it also stops it from drying out, and it's really important for protection. So this amniotic egg was a really great step in evolution, like I said, because it helps kind of these early tetrapods and land-living animals branch further away from water. So um, what kind of animals are amniotes? So actually, a lot of land animals are actually amniotes. So reptiles are amniotes, birds are amniotes, and actually we're amniotes as well. And Nick did mention we don't obviously lay eggs, but even though this isn't how we give birth, we still maintain these structures. So we still have these membranes. We just have developed it in a different way and have extra adaptations on top of these. Oh, well, it's nice to know I have something in common with birds. You're an amniote too. <laughs> I always suspected I did. <laughs> and actually, oh, just, um, I forgot to mention, so even though this evolved quite early on, the oldest known fossilized amniote egg is probably only about 200 million years old. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a couple of hundred million years after they think it's evolved, so. Oh, wow. We all know you can't live in an egg forever, right? That's true, I guess, yeah. So you've got to get out at some point. Have you guys ever considered how difficult it would be to get out of an egg? 
I'm getting claustrophobia just thinking about it now. Yeah, so there's a few adaptations which animals have to help them do that. So have you guys heard of egg teeth? These are temporary additions, I suppose is the best way to put it, to parts of the animal when they need to break out of a shell. And there's particular problems for birds and crocodiles. Obviously, um, crocodiles are birds' closest living relatives. So it's not, uh, not a surprise that they have very similar eggs. But what's really similar about those two is they have an inner lining uh, inside the egg as well as that out, outer harder case. So they have a, a, a similar problem to, to get over and they, they, they attack it in a similar way. So when they're in the egg, what triggers the fact that they need to release is that they're too big just to absorb oxygen that's diffusing through the, sh the shell wall. But luckily for them, at the flat part of the egg, the sort of the, the wider bit in, in birds' eggs, there's an air sac which they can use, but it will only last a few hours. So what they do is they access that air sac so they can breathe for a few hours, but at this point they need to get out of the shell. And what they have is an egg tooth. And you can see this on very young birds. Uh, it will slowly fall off after a period of weeks, but it's sort of like a little tooth on the top of their beak usually. And they will use that to scratch the first layer, so that's open, so that's not a problem. And then they will use, they've got a special muscle in the back of their neck, I think it's called the, the pipping, pipping muscle. And this very strong muscle enables them to stretch their neck and break through the calcium carbonate, which makes up the shell. So it's quite a complicated process and it can be a disaster. Okay, so say what would happen if you didn't have an egg tooth? This would be a disaster, right? Well, it just so happens there is a bird that doesn't have an egg tooth. Do you guys know which one it is? It's sort of a weird one. And when I tell you it, this one, you'd be like, oh, that makes sense. Like, uh, this is not right. But the thing that comes to my mind first is like, ostrich. Oh, it's the night parrot. <laughs> <laughs> it's neither of them. Ostriches are super, super weird birds. But it's the kiwi. Oh, the kiwi. Yeah, a generally odd bird. Say you don't have a, um, an egg tooth, uh, how long can it go? Well, a kiwi hatching out of an egg can take three days. Oh my god, that's yeah. too long. Yeah, so um, it's exhausting, apparently. It kicks and pecks its way out. So what it does, it pokes a hole in the tiny air-filled sac so it can get access to the air. And it will use the tip of its very long beak to poke through to, uh, I think, make a hole in the egg. And at this point, following this amount of effort it's had to put in, it may sleep for about 12 to 48 hours. When it wakes up again, it will start pushing against the shell wall with everything it's got until it's last it's free. But this can take up to three days. And then the parent will often eat the old eggs so it can get back some of the calcium. Oh, smart. Cool. Apparently you do that with chickens too. Feed them their crushed up eggshells in their feet. But yeah, it's not just birds and crocodiles which happen. So the birds, it will tend to be on their beak. Crocodiles have sort of a hard bit of skin on the end of their snout, so similar place, but different makeup. But other animals have them. Snakes and lizards actually have an actual tooth. Is it like a snaggle tooth, just sticking out? Yeah, yeah, it comes out the front of their snout, and it is, it's made in the same place that teeth are made, and it falls off after a while. Whoa. Huh. Yeah, so they use that to get out of their, their shells as well. But yeah, anything which uh, has a, a shell quite often have a, an egg tooth to help them out. Which is, uh, I thought it was quite fun. So, um, something you mentioned um, there was bird eggs um, and different kinds of, of eggs and different adaptions that different birds have to get out of the egg. But something that I wanted to talk about was the shape of eggs. And I think something we classically think of is, is that egg shape, so slightly wider on the bottom and narrow at the top, 
kind of think of a chicken egg, say. So not all birds have eggs that shape, but it is sort of a general trend. So I found this paper that looked at why this is the case. So this paper was published a couple of years ago in Science, and it did a lot of different things. It was a very widespread paper. So it looked at a lot of different things um, at how this shape came about. So they got a 1,400 different eggs and they mapped them on a graph. And so the way the graph was, was so they mapped ellipticity on the y-axis and asymmetry on the x-axis. And so roughly speaking, most of the eggs sort of went in a diagonal line from the bottom left to the top right. So on the ellipticity axis, we've got more spherical on the bottom and more elliptical up at the top. And for asymmetry, we've got more symmetric on the left and more asymmetric on the right. So they looked at a lot of different things to figure out what it was that created this pattern. So they looked at the clutch size, they looked at diet, and they looked at flight ability. And they looked at lots of different birds across the avian family tree. And they found that actually this variation across species in size of shape on their eggs is not random, but it's actually related to differences in ecology and particularly to related, related to flight. They found that birds tend to lay eggs that are more asymmetric and more elliptical if they are better flyers. They suggest that because the birds' bodies are more adapted for flight, this is the shape that is more kind of aerodynamic, that they get the maximum volume, but they don't sort of compromise on their body shape and their aerodynamicness. So this sort of shape allows for them to have quite a large volume, but also being able to keep a sleek body set, a sleek body plan. I like the idea of the most aerodynamic egg. Yeah, so it's really interesting because a lot of like traditional ideas for how, like why this was the case was, you know, it, it's to do with the egg doesn't roll away or that it's easier to lay eggs this shape. So this is quite different to what the classical idea is of why this is a, the common shape is. But yeah, it, it's interesting. So, so not all eggs. There are, there are some cool ones that I discovered that have sort of, I guess, eggs that are a little bit different from this. So say the brown hawk owl has a very spherical egg. And then the maleo has a very elliptical egg. Um, and it's very symmetrical. So there's some cool birds that I found have some eggs outside of this elliptical shape. But yeah. It's kind of oh. nice to know that not all bird eggs are uniform, but I feel that some eggs get weirder than that. Nick, your intuition, as usual, is right. Eggs can get pretty weird, but today I just want to talk about a couple of weird eggs, not anything too crazy. If I said, what's the biggest egg, what would your guess be? It's you. <laughs> uh. Are you asking just like biggest egg? size-wise or biggest egg relative to what lays it? Great question, Naomi. Uh, and you've seen through my clever plan. Um, <laughs> but what would the first one be? The largest egg? Absolutely. Still going? Still going. Ostrich? Yeah, that was my answer too. She's back. The ostrich is back and it's the biggest <laughs> egg. The heaviest ostrich egg? Not attention. <laughs> so excited. <laughs> The average ostrich egg weighs around one and a half kilograms, which is about the same size as 24 chicken eggs. 
but the ostrich egg is the smallest egg in the world in proportion to the body size of the thing that lays it. So it makes up only 2% of the ostrich's body weight. Now, there's another type, Naomi, that you asked. What is the largest egg by proportion of the body size? And we've already mentioned it today in our podcast. Nick, I think you know this one. I literally have no idea. You're such, you're so good. Believe it or not, it's the <laughs> kiwi. <laughs> and to save you the effort of clicking back into the podcast to figure out why we were talking about the kiwi earlier, it's the one that doesn't have an egg tooth. And they spend three days trying to get out of it. Because it's the biggest egg in proportion to their body size, around six times as large as the average bird egg for their size. Goodness me. So if an ostrich gave birth like a kiwi, it would have an eight kilo, no, a nine kilogram egg. Hold on. Checking my maths. How dare you? Kiwi's egg is about 20% of the mother's body weight. So it would weigh 15 kilograms if the ostrich laid an egg like a kiwi. Oh, that's insane. That is impressive. Yeah. The only other things I wanted to talk about are the coolest thing that you find on the beach, the mermaid's purse or as it's, as it's otherwise known, shark's eggs. Or egg. Ray's eggs. Or Ray's eggs. Mm. Old, good old Ray. <laughs> the particular shark that I want to talk about and draw your attention to if you haven't seen the picture, we all know the mermaid's purse where it has the, the, it's like a little rectangle and it has the little strands on all four corners. But the horn shark, Heterodontus francisci, has another type of egg that is in the shape of a corkscrew. And it's one of the few sharks that shows parental care. And what it does is after it's given birth to the egg, it will take the egg in its mouth and twist it into a crevice so that it gets sort of stuck in there. with the, It's like a screw. And it gets stuck in the crevice and then it stays there safe, protected from harm until it can be given birth to, until it releases its little baby. That's really cool. Uh-huh. Does- does the parent shark then kind of stay around it? I don't think so. But the taking it in the mouth and the... I mean, Hasn't it done enough? <laughs> yeah, isn't that enough for a shark? It screwed it into a crevice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So demanding, Naomi. To be honest, um, I wouldn't want to be taken into the mouth of a shark at any point in my life. Not fair. Mm-hmm. Me neither, yeah. Last thing about the weird eggs. This is to go back to something Naomi mentioned earlier, the oldest amniotic egg, about 195 million years old, are known from the fossil record from stem sauropods, which are the really big, long-necked herbivores. So those, were our, those are our first record egg layers. Oh, awesome. Thank you, dinosaurs. I was looking at egg records. I was looking at, you were looking at one type of size, I was looking at brood size. Uh, do you know the record for vertebrates? Can you guess which branch of family it might come from? Fish. You're right, it's a fish. It's a sunfish. And really, thankfully for the taxonomist you name the sunfish, because you've heard us struggle with all these Latin names. The sunfish Latin name is Mola Mola. So thank you. Oh, thank uh, God. <laughs> but it can release up to 300 million eggs in one spawning season. Yeah, that's quite a brood size. Queen bees, queen bees, their job is to lay eggs. When they're peak laying mode in the spring, uh, they can lay about 15,000 eggs per day. Uh, that's more than their own body weight in eggs every day. It's pretty good going. But that's not the best even from the Hymenoptera. The African driver ant, Doriolus wilverthi, can lay up to broods with three to four million eggs every 25 days. Yeah, 
That's too many eggs. It's a lot of eggs. Probably the species with the highest lifetime fecundity among you social insects. They lay eggs more or less continuously, but with bursts of high production every three weeks that last, last five to six days. Yeah, a burst of high production that lasts six days is quite terrifying. But what really drew me to when I was thinking about insects was not the eggs they lay, but how they lay them. So there's some amazing ways that they actually get their eggs where they're meaning to be going. So are you guys, do you remember when we were in the hymenopter episode, I mentioned uh, ovipositors? Yeah, those, yeah, mm-hmm. the creepy yes. long ones. I tried to block it out. It's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, sawflies are called sawflies because their ovipositor is a saw, and they will use that to saw a hole in a plant, and then they can lay an egg inside the plant for its protection. So much better than corkscrewing it into a wall, they're actually hidden it inside something. So insects have adapted their ovipositors so they can lay them inside dirt, inside woods, other things. But there were two that I really wanted to focus on. So one of them, again, Hymenoptera, these are both parasites, which probably explains why they're so unusual because they have to be so specialised, was the Apocrita westwoody grandi. This is a parasitic fig wasp. And what's really cool about this is its ovipositor is metal tip. So the tip oh of its ovipositor is about 7% zinc. Wow. Yeah. And there's probably a reason for this because it's actually twice the length of the wasp's body, but the ovipositor is only one fifth the diameter of a human hair. So how can you get it to dig down into a fig? What it's looking for is something living inside the fig, which you can parasitize. So it has to dig and look around and then get inside the larva. So that's why it has this metal tip sort of help it search its way through the tough fruit and into its host. That's not the longest one. There's a longer ovipositor, and that's from the Megarysa atrata. And this wasp is about five centimeters long, pretty big wasp. Its ovipositor is up to 15 centimeters in length. Yeah, so that's half a 30 centimeter ruler. It's the ovipositor ovipositor makes up 75% of its body length? Yeah. Wow. I was going to say, it gives me no-no feelings. I don't like it. (laughs) But you'll be pleased to know that even though it's a wasp, it's not actually harmful to humans. Most of the stinging things are adaptive ovipositors, and this ovipositor is so adaptive for its purpose that it can't sting us as well. And the reason is, it's trying to get into wood. Because again, it's looking for a host, because it's a parasitic wasp, and its host lives deep inside the wood. It burrows tunnels inside. So it looks for these tunnels, and then it sends this long ovipositor through the wood into this tunnel, and then it will try and inject its eggs into that host. So that's why it has to be so long uh, and so sturdy as well, that it can actually drill through wood, which we all know how difficult that is. Yeah, it's definitely something I do regularly. So yeah, I can understand why those uh, thoughts on the ovipositors, as Naomi put it, might give you the no-no feelings. So I thought it might be better that we end on sort of a bit more cerebral musing on eggs. And for that, we reach across to our literary correspondent, Nick. It's been a while, friends, since I played that role uh, in the podcast, but I wanted to share with you something I've been reading the last couple of weeks. It's called The Outdoor World by W.S. Furneaux. From bugs to birds, it describes the wildlife of England and how to go about seeing it. And I wanted to share with you guys, because we're doing our episode this week on eggs, the section on seeing eggs in the wild. So as you may know, it's illegal to collect eggs in a lot of countries, including the UK, but you can still look at them. And here are some tips on getting close to see the different eggs uh, in the nests near you. 
There is only one way of getting thoroughly acquainted with birds, and that is to search them out in their haunts, examine their nests and eggs, and watch the progress of the broods of little ones. Let us start out with this object in view. Oh, to, to give you a little context, this was published in 1897. Choosing a fine dry day in spring or early summer, we start off provided with a pair of strong leather gloves to assist us in pushing our way through prickly or thorny bushes. And if possible, a binocular glass to help us watch the movements and to discern the colors of the birds. It is rather a difficult matter to decide as to what kind of ground we shall select for our hunt since the haunts of the different species are so very variable, but perhaps we cannot do better than choose a spot of wooded country, thickly overgrown with bushes of all sizes and intersected by a stream, a rugged and wild spot with numerous hollows and banks, and here and there a small grassy space. Some birds sit very closely on their nests and will not fly off unless we approach very near, so we walk very quietly among the bushes, tapping them with a stick as we pass. In this way, we drive many from their nests close at hand and generally find but little difficulty in discovering their homes. But often we may fail even after a very diligent search, both in, in and under the bush. In such a case, we retreat to an adjacent hiding place and watch for the return of the old bird, noticing as far as possible the exact locality of the resting place. Then another and very cautious approach may give us a better clue to the position of the nest. Often we see a bird carrying some nest building material in its beak. Then the binocular is brought into service for the purpose of finding out where the homemaking is going on. Some nests are very easily found by simply looking into the larger bushes without any knowledge derived from the movements of the parents. But as a rule, much time is wasted in this way and we should do much better to work on the hints suggested by the behavior of the birds themselves. If the presence of a nest is suspected in a large bush, our best plan will be to push our way underneath and look upward, for looking in this direction with the sky as a background, any collection of materials amidst the leaves and branches will be far more easily detected. We must by no means, however, combine our attention to bushes and trees. In fact, the sites chosen are so varied in character that unless we regard the birds as our guides, we are quite at a loss as to where we shall search. Old hollow trees, holes in walls, rabbit burrows, cornfields, hedges by the roadside, holes in the banks of streams, crevices of rocks and among reeds in a marsh are only a few of the many spots chosen by birds. Well, that was very pleasing. But all I could think throughout you were saying that, Nick, if uh, anyone wants an insight and anyone's wondering, what is Nick like? So he's, that was published in 1897? That's right. So I would bank on the fact that everything me and Naomi research is through a laptop and especially things from <laughs> 1897. Um, if you want an insight into Nick's mind, having said that, he then whacked out an actual book and read from that. Why do you have a book from 1897 to hand that you were able to go like, this has a bit of bad eggs in it? Nick, I don't have a good answer for you, but I will say that I don't have any answer for you. I don't have an answer for you. Um, well, that's why you are literary correspondent. Me and Gnomes could not step up to this plate. <laughs> Listen, I, I know that um, there, there's a lot of stuff coming out all the time, but there's also some good stuff from the past, too. I think the tips for finding birds' nests and taking a peek into them haven't changed much. I imagine it's harder now. Yeah, yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. Actually, there's some sec- there's a section in this book describing uh, some of the insects in England and having lived in England and seen what insects are there. There are not many left from what mm. were once there. Stag beetles. Yeah. Are they there still? Yeah. Okay. They're rare. They're rare. Giant spiders. Giant house spiders. Still have those. Yeah. Giant ice spiders being ridden by white walkers. You only find them up north. Well, that seems a lovely note to end on. We'll be back next week, though, where we'll be talking about flight. We're going to soar to new heights next week, so tune in. (laughs) Yeah. But I guess until then, goodbye. 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 Did that make sense? Um, the what I said yeah. there. Cool. Um, okay, I will end this.